Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's not that Chewbacca Hutchings is eclectic. I mean, yes, the saxophonist and composer blends jazz, calypso, dancehall, hip-hop, African folk music, Afrobeat. But that alone isn't what makes him so great. Chewbacca was born in the UK, raised mostly in Barbados. He studied classical music in college, not jazz, and that's interesting, but again, it's not the reason you should listen to his music. You should listen to the music of Chewbacca Hutchings because he makes brilliant, beautiful songs. His music is vivid, complex, and hypnotic. As the leader of the bands Shabaka and the Ancestors and Sons of Kemet, Hutchings has found ways to speak using the language of all these genres to make something that is entirely unique and entirely his. When he writes a piece like, say, Go My Heart, Go to Heaven, you hear the harmonized sax work of Ethiopian jazz legend Mulatu Astatke, but the energy's different. It's cooler, more romantic, and a little disoriented. Or in The Sons of Kemet, the band more informed by his upbringing in Barbados, you might hear a dub song performed almost entirely by horns. And then Shabaka himself goes into a sax solo. It's absolutely breathtaking. The Sons of Kemet have a brand new album. It just came out. It's called Black to the Future. I'm so excited to have Shabaka Hutchings on the show. Let's hear a song off the new record. This is To Never Forget the Source. Shabaka Hutchings, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Hi, yeah, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. Your first instrument was the clarinet. How did you end up with a clarinet in your hand? Um, well, I, I went to school in Barbados. I moved to Barbados from England when I was six, and that's where I picked up the clarinet. And in the school bands there, you normally have a whole bunch of clarinets. So you'll have like 12 to 14 clarinets in the front row, then like two saxophones, two trumpets, two trombones, a drum kit maybe a piano bass. Um, so they just had a load of clarinets, I guess, because they're cheap. Um, and you, you know, you get them in the kind of cadet bands also playing the march and stuff. I really wanted a saxophone, um, because I thought it was cool, but they were just like, we only, we've only got two saxophones and you're getting a clarinet. So what kind of music was being played by this band of two saxophones and 14 clarinets? 
<laughs> absolutely everything like you know we used to play like calypso songs we'd play stuff like pomp and circumstance uh the kind of all colonial hits uh we'd play some some classical stuff we'd play some reggae numbers it was you know it's one of those like school variety bands where we just got arrangement and just played them I don't know if this is the case in Barbados. It is in the United States that Pomp and Circumstance plays when uh, everyone is doing like a graduation processional, um, you know, everyone wearing their mortar boards and accepting their diplomas. Uh, and I'm just imagining right now that scene, you know, the that very dignified scene, but also with the addition of 14 clarinets. Oh, yeah. It was a, um, a joyful sound, if you like clarinets. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what kind of music was playing in your house when you were a kid? Uh, well, my mother used to play a lot of calypso and soca, reggae, but then a lot of soul. So I remember people like, you know, Millie Jackson being played, or people like Luther Vandross. Um, but the radio was always on, and, you know, that was the, the 90s. So on the radio was a lot of kind of hip-hop from that era. So I remember hearing... And actually, you know, I actually remember it being really diverse. I remember even hearing like a group like West Side Connection on the radio in Barbados. Um, Outcast, Naz was there. Um, but then you had lots of lovers rock and people like Tony Braxton, Brian McKnight, which was really fundamental to me because I used to really listen to the melodies. And I remember playing along the melody to things like, you know, Back at One by Brian McKnight or Unbreak My Heart by Tony Braxton. And that was my first real introduction to playing the clarinet it wasn't the repertoire that i had to play for the exams it was me going home and then just playing along to the radio with all these melodies that i was you know that i loved yeah i do i'm i'm pumped about the idea of babyface going back and, and remixing his production hits just adding one clarinet oh yeah <laughs> or 14 <laughs> yeah or 14 for that matter did you grow up with MCs around you? Is there was there native hip hop going on in Barbados? Not at that time, no. Um, it was just on the radio, and I used to just record all the songs that I could and and just play them back. And I used to get in some trouble. I remember actually the guidance counselor had this ongoing feud with me because I kept on. I was a massive gangster rap fan, um, and I used to learn all the words and write them down and just kind of recite them to myself in class. And one day she found my, she opened my desk and she found my stash of, of hip hop, hardcore hip hop lyrics. And she brought out the 10 crack commandments by Notorious B.I.G. And she kind of read them aloud and <laughs> got into lots of troubles. She like forced me out of the class and, you know, I was in detention for weeks and, you know, she was saying this guy is, you know, destructive and look at the lyrics and all of this stuff. Uh, and there's nothing I could say in my defense other than I'm playing music in your, in your school band. So I can't be all bad. <laughs> yeah, I feel like Biggie in particular loses a lot on the page. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you read it without the context and without the, the rhythm and the, the whole the whole thing, it become it has a different resonance if you just read the written lyrics, you know. What else do you remember memorizing or or uh, transcribing? So I was a massive Tupac fan. I had pictures of him on my, you know, posters on my wall. I had kind of stickers on my books. Um, so Me Against the World was one of my favorite albums when that came out. Um, I remember when Naz's Illmatic came out, you know, loving that, you know, the track, was it Represent? I think it is uh, mm -hmm. towards the end of the album. Um, just, yeah, just kind of not, 
I didn't see it as transcribing, you know, and, and I didn't see it as even learning. I just loved it and played them all the time, these songs all the time, and then just knew them. Outcasts, AT Aliens was another, you know, seminal one for me where I just knew the album really well because I just listened to it constantly. Yeah, I feel like AT Aliens, in fact, all three of those records that you just mentioned, I feel like Illmatic and AT Aliens and also the Outcast album, Equimini, like those are all records that I can listen to at any time. Just yeah. I'm glad to like they're albums that I heard when I was 12 and that now that I'm uh, recently 40, uh, I can still play over and over and over in a way that I, you know, can't necessarily with (laughs) a lot of the records I loved when I was 12. Yeah. They've they've definitely stood the test of time. When you moved to Barbados from England, your folks are from Barbados, but you were born in in the UK. Yeah. When you moved to Barbados from England when you were six, did you want to move? Did you like moving? Uh, I can't really remember. And I think at that age, it wasn't really a matter of wanting to. It was just something that happened. Uh, I remember feeling sad that you know, like friends that I'd recently started to really form relationships with for the first time, I had to leave. But then it's like, especially when you get to somewhere like Barbados, which is such a radically different environment, it's like your all your senses are overwhelmed with the difference. Um, so there's no real time or space for sentimentality. There's like the sun, everything that you see is, you know, there's different colors, there's the beach, there's the carnival, there's um so yeah there wasn't a there wasn't a a sense of mourning there was just a sense of the new new environment Uh, i always knew the plan that's that's the thing i think my life has been a life of plans like my mother always explained to me why we were going like we were going because i would get a better education there than i would in england considering you know our socioeconomic circumstance and then i was always going to come back to britain when i was 16 do my a-levels take a, a gap year so that I've had the three years until I get home status. Cause if you're out of the country for a certain time, you lose it. And then I would go to university. So I always worked towards those kind of imaginative goals. Did you like those goals? Um, it wasn't a matter of liking them or not liking them. Uh, and I guess it's strange if, you know, like to, to say, and I, I, you know, I kind of find myself while I'm saying them going, no, did you like them or not like them? They were just, it was just what happened, you know, it was just me and my mother. And it was like, we were a team, like we were doing, we were in it together. It was like, we're going to go to Britain, you know, uh, at this point, you're going to do your A-levels. And I was like, yeah, cool. That's, that's what it was. Um, it was just about that sense of striving for something. You know, there was always that sense um, instilled in me that, you know, we're working towards something. It wasn't just a case of we're in a, in a specific place because we are, you know, native to that space. You were an only child that must have led to a fair amount of at home by yourself clarinet time. Yeah. I mean, I love being an only child. I, uh, I can't imagine it any other way. Um, uh, I'm really kind of happy being by myself. And I, you know, I just remembered, you know, my mother didn't let me watch the TV in the week. She didn't let me play video games. Um, so I only had TV on the weekend and I mean, when everyone had like a Sega or something on Nintendo X, she finally let me have a Game Boy with Tetris. 
you know, and her whole thing was like, you know, you've got better things to do. Like you can read these books, you can play your clarinet. And I, I really enjoyed playing the clarinet. I, I love the physical feeling of it. I love playing to the radio. Um, so, you know, that's what I did. And I was, you know, I was really content. You know, I didn't feel like there was any, anything lacking. I have a friend and colleague named John Hodgman, who's a comedian and he has, he's an only child. And in one of his acts, he, he made himself uh, the president of the only children, super smart, afraid of conflict, narcissist club. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. There is a special thing to being an only child where uh, uh, you do like learn to live within yourself, but it can also be hard to figure out what to do when you're outside of that context. Yeah. I mean, my mother is an only child also. So it's like two generations of only children. So it's pretty deeply ingrained. So at what point did you uh, switch from the very cool clarinet to the extremely cool saxophone? <laughs> um, there was never a, a solid switch. I always wanted a saxophone. And, and in the last year of being in Barbados, um, I was able to borrow one to play in the kind of Calypso tents was, was the big achievement. And the Calypso tents are these, I guess, Calypso variety shows is the best way of putting it, where you have like 12, 10 to 12 Calypsonians who do a song each. And then there's a break and then they do another song. And the whole island will come out to see, you know, one of maybe 20 of these tents that happen all across the island. And then judges pick the best of them to go into Calypso final, semifinals and then finals. So I was playing in the band in my last year of Barbados. So it meant playing, you know, every week, you know, playing for all of these Calypsonians and, you know, they don't use clarinets. I was able to borrow a saxophone. And from that point, I was like, I need to get a saxophone no matter what. So I got to to England and I was able to get a real crappy saxophone um, at 16, practice really hard on it. And then I did a church concert when I was about 17 and we earned about... 1800 pounds in three pound tickets in a church that could only fit about, you know, a hundred people. So it was really selling tickets to people that would never be able to come. My mom was, you know, selling tickets to people in the grocery store in the line. She would just turn around and sort in the program and say, you know, come, you know, give me three pounds. My son's trying to buy a clarinet. So at that point, you know, I had a saxophone and was practicing it, but I was a clarinet player and my, my passion was the clarinet. You know, I, I started that journey. Um, so I decided that actually I wanted to see it through. So I studied the classical degree on clarinet and university. Um, not because I wanted to be a, a classical clarinetist, but it's just, I thought if I started this procedure of learning the instrument, I want to see what it is to actually study it in its native habitat, you know, i.e. the conservatoire. And see if I can actually do the work to, you know, to hang with the kind of grace of that instrument. One of the things that always shocks me when I think about the playing of classical music is that, you know, the goal in some way is to reproduce this idea that was in the composer's head. And the composer's been dead 250 years. And at the top of the page, it just says Andante or whatever. Oh, yeah. um, and so it is like this weird it is like this weird dialogue with a ghost that is through the medium of generations of classical musicians that went before you right like it's like a crazy game of telephone where you have a score and the score has a little bit of guidance you know it has that andante on top or whatever yeah. but then you have to figure out what it means to 
be faithful to that work. Yeah, and this is the, for me, the incredible aspect of it and actually where it intersects with the African concept of ancestor worship because you are actually trying to tune in to the energy of something or someone that has, that has something that's come before you. And to do that, you've got to really lose your sense of self and try to imagine and picture yourself within their mental space. And then I guess the more you, the more you do that, the more you can actually find how, how your own personality intersects with that energy space that you're trying to get yourself into. Uh, what I always remembered is someone telling me that Bach never wrote um, expression marks. He never wrote articulation marks because he actually trusted, he worked with the performers and he trusted them to actually interpret it, um, his music in a way that was faithful to them. And that way would be in tandem to, with what he was, you know, about. Um, so I've always taken the attitude that, you know, and I think maybe it got me s- sometimes less scores on uh, and exams because I would take liberties with expression marks because I thought it should go in a certain way. But I just thought I'm never going to be a classical musician anyway, so I can kind of do what I want. <laughs> What did you think were the skills that you are gaining by putting yourself through, other than a degree, uh, by putting yourself through this, you know, rigorous education with no intention of becoming a classical musician? Um, I guess it was like an initiation. It's like I was sacrificing myself for the clarinet, you know, for this instrument, um, or just an idea that I'm going to to learn it just because. Um, One of the big skills that I learned was the ability to listen laterally. Uh, and it's something that I can't remember the name of the the visiting conductor, but someone told me in my first year of university where they were like, if you're in an orchestra, you've got to be able to hear every aspect of what's being performed. So there might be 40 people on stage. If you really know and understand the music, you've got to be listening to hear what that you know, that French horn is doing way in the back. You've got to hear what the violas are doing all while playing. So you've really got to listen in a holistic way. And it, it opened me up because at the time I was listening to my contribution and trying to get it right. And then all of a sudden I was like, but can I hear what's happening, you know, way across the hall? And that's a skill that I've taken onto the bandstand when playing, you know, when playing jazz or playing any kind of music, which is you need to actually hear what's happening within the, you know, within your environment. Did you at some point decide that you wanted to be a jazz musician in deciding that you did not want to be a professional classical musician? No, I, I really, uh, and this is really the honest answer. I didn't, I really just didn't think about it that much. I just came out of college and started gigging whatever I could do to make, you know, to make money. I didn't know what it was to be a jazz musician because I didn't do the jazz course. I didn't feel like my kind of core changes playing was as good as everyone else who did the course and was practicing changes and giant steps and all Cherokee and all these tunes, you know, day after day. So I just thought, you know, I'm never going to be as good as those jazz players who really, really learned the language and the tradition, but I've got a passion for music and I know how to, you know, how to speak my, my mind musically. So, you know, I'll just do what I can do. And even up to now, it's like, the fact that people call me a jazz musician, you know, I find it strange because I've always saw, I've always seen my defects. If you're looking at the specific, you know, music, like if you're looking at bebop as a specific form, I feel like my, my language is limited within that specific form, but my understanding of the music in terms of how much I've listened to it and understand of the inner workings of it on a creative level, I think is, is, is large. 
you know, like we can go into another conversation about the word jazz and the limitations about, you know, and I think my misgivings about how I was placed within that history um, came from actually the thing that, from my knowledge, musicians like Miles Davis and Charlie Parker, Coltrane, why they've tried to actually reject the term because it's not, it felt like if you understand a certain vocabulary, you were that type of musician, as opposed to if you had a certain approach to creativity and to um, an awareness of the past and a way of um, molding the past to your personal journey. We'll finish up with Shabaka Hutchings in a minute. When we return, Shabaka tells us how he's been keeping busy during the pandemic. Turns out he's been teaching himself to use a digital sampler. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Fidelity Wealth Management. VP Dylan Sanders shares why it's important to understand clients' values. At times, it feels difficult to work towards just a dollar amount. And having a conversation about what wealth is for brings excitement and purpose to all the work in getting there. To learn more, go to fidelity.com slash wealth. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. I'm Yoe Shaw. I'm Kia Miakonatis. We're the hosts of the NPR podcast, Invisibilia. You can think of Invisibilia kind of like a sonic blacklight. When you switch us on, you'll hear surprising and intimate stories. Stories that help you notice things in your world that maybe you didn't see before. Listen to the Invisibilia podcast from NPR. The 2021 pin sale has begun. Thank you so much to everyone who participated in the Max Fund Drive. This is the last year for a while that we'll be doing pins for Max Fund Drive, and the fifth year that we'll be selling pins and donating all proceeds to charity. The past year proved what we already knew that having access to the internet at home is a necessity for work, school, healthcare, and keeping in touch with family and friends. So the proceeds from this year's pin sale will go towards Everyone On, a nonprofit working to bridge the digital divide. We're grateful that with your support, we'll be able to help low-income folks gain access to affordable computers, internet services, and digital literacy programs. The sale will run until May 28th. Folks at the $10 monthly level and above will have access to all of the pins from the drive. That's 38 pins, one from every show on the network. We also have a special 2021 Max Fun Drive pin that all members can purchase. Go to maximumfun.org/pinsale for more info. And to learn more about Everyone On and support them directly, you can go to everyoneon.org. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Shabaka Hutchings. He's a saxophone player and composer. He fronts the band's Sons of Kemet and Shabaka and the Ancestors. He's one of my favorite jazz musicians. Sons of Kemet have a new record that just came out last week. It's called Black to the Future. You can buy or stream it now. Let's get back into our conversation. Let's play a little bit of the first single from this new Sons of Kemet record. Uh, the album's called Black to the Future. And the song is called Hustle. I've been doing mileage with my phone on silent. Hear no, see no, felt the violence. God got my blessings on autopilot. Why ain't no one tell me peace of mind was pricey? I could dance with the devil, but that's unlikely. My gold broke, but that's unlikely. I was born from the mud with the hustle inside me. Born from the mud with the hustle inside me. Feeding my soul. I go make nothing something. So I'm... 
I'm very interested in the intersection between hip hop and jazz because I think we're pretty similar age. And when I was a kid, there was a lot of very corny talk about the intersections between hip hop and jazz. It was sort of right up there with people saying that rappers were poets. You know, you're like, well, but how can we just have rappers be rappers? Like, can that yeah, yeah. be a good thing? <laughs> but I feel like in the last, uh, maybe even just in the last 10 years, there's been such a blossoming of, of the intersection between those two kinds of music as, as jazz musicians, especially who grew up listening to hip hop, become adult proficient jazz musicians and let that inform their music. When you put a rapper on a record like this, what's your responsibility as a musician? I mean, it's, you know, a rapper is writing their verses necessarily, right? So how does that change what you're doing when there's when there's someone spinning bars on top? For me, they're, they're musicians. Like the decision to call them a rapper is a... It's a culturally specific, you know, designation. If you just see them as musicians who use words um, and you're not necessarily listening, obviously there is a dimension where I listen to the narrative and the lyric, but there is a greater dimension where I'm listening to the accent, the accentuations in their rhythm and seeing how that reacts to the, to the band. And I think that's what the, you know, that's the element that I'm most interested in. And that's the element that I think, as a group, we try to really sink into how we can play off the accents in the rhythm. Like when you hear a rapper, it's like, you know, it's not notes as in in a saxophone, but if the notes are at the focal point, if the rhythm is the focal point within a time space, then it's so much information to just bounce off and be fed by. It just changes your whole way of responding, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like the element that people who don't listen to a lot of hip-hop lose from the performance of an MC is almost always flow. Hmm. Like, to a certain extent, people who aren't really fluent in listening to hip-hop might lose words or lose lose lyrics. Like, you hear sometimes, I can't tell what they're saying, right? But in general, I feel like the piece that goes missing when people, especially when people intellectualize hip-hop, is that sort of style element that is the most important part yeah. <laughs> of a rapper, right? Like, like the Ten Crack Commandments, like Biggie's Biggie's lyrics. If you look at them on a page, I mean, there's cool stuff in there, but pretty unremarkable. But the thing that is amazing about Biggie is his style, yeah. right? His his voice and the way he uses his voice. Yeah, the approach, yeah, the approach to rhythm, like how you're actually using your voice as a drum within a, 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 pen, a given pentameter. You know, that is the important thing. And people have been saying it, you know, like, oh, look at this flow. And that's the, that's where your thoughts should be orientated. Um, but this is the whole thing with the clash of cultures is that it's a clash of priorities, like what the priority is. If you're looking at that music and actually, you're not aware of the subtlety in flow. All you hear is the grid. All you hear are words in relation to a grid and, and nothing else. Then, then you won't get it. It'll be invisible. But as soon as you actually perceive, you know, the existence of a, a world of flow and a world of inflection, then it becomes a completely different art form. So Sons of Kemet is a relatively small group with two drummers, you know, James Brown famously toured with two drummers. I think that was 
primarily so that he could fire one at any time <laughs> without having to fly a new guy in. <laughs> what is your goal in having this relatively small group uh, that has two drummers? Um, communication. You know, I find whenever you get a second drummer, it releases the drums from being a timekeeping instrument. You know, it means that they can actually have a dialogue. And it's that that communication that means that actually we as instrumentalists then have another force to communicate with. Uh, and obviously, if there's one drummer, there'll be communication happening. But there's just another level of communication when you get two drummers together. Unless the two drummers have been given specific parts and they're locked into a kind of a set groove. Um, I like to tell them just not to do that as much as possible, you know, and there was even a period when I was telling them if they could pretend that they're percussionists and just think about what they're doing on isolated bits of the kit, as opposed to playing the drum set, that would be better. Let's hear another Sons of Kemet track. Um, maybe something from their 2018 album, Your Queen is a Reptile. There's a song. So each of the tracks on this record is named after sort of great woman from the African diaspora, from the history of the African diaspora. This track, My Queen is Ada Eastman, is named after your grandmother, right? Uh, my great-grandmother. Great-grandmother. Tell yeah. me what you knew about her. Um, well, when we first moved to Barbados, um, we stayed at her house for a couple of months before, as, as we got settled. And, you know, she was alive for the whole time that I was in Barbados. Um, so she lived till she was 103. And I just knew her as, in, in, you know, incredibly lucid and hardworking, you know, woman. One of my earliest memories of her is on is her on top of the roof, you know, fixing the house, you know, with a hammer. And that must have been when she was like, I don't know, like late 80s. Um, she was always just walking around the neighborhood. Everyone knew she used to walk around, you know, get lost. And then people would just kind of guide her back to her house. Uh, and she was really a matriarch. She, you know, she owns three houses um, just from working and working and working. Um, she, I think she kind of, when she retired, she then moved to America uh, and then worked for 20 years, then came back to Barbados and, you know, kind of kept doing odd jobs. So yeah, it was really, I just knew her as someone that was really serious about providing for the whole family. Let's hear Sons of Kemet and My Queen is Ada Eastman. So I've heard you describe Sons of Kemet relative to your other records as being relatively Caribbean. What does that mean for you? It means that when I'm sitting down to compose just the, the foundational music, the music that formed initial impetus, I'm thinking about my memory of the Caribbean and allowing that memory to inform the, the the underpinning of the music. 
Now, when the band takes it and then interprets it in their ways, then it drifts off into something else. But at least for the very foundation of the music, a lot of it, especially in the early albums, was formed from my recollections of the Caribbean. And that might be something as simple as the bass line or the very initial clave that I asked the drummers to play or the, you know, the melody line. I, I like the idea of mystery in music. So I don't like things to be clear cut. So me saying that the band has a Caribbean underpinning in, in terms of the compositional structure doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to hear it directly, but there's going to be something in there that you can actually unpick and link back to the, the Caribbean if you, you know, you know where to look. I find the music kind of mesmeric, you know, sort of like what they call spiritual jazz. Like it is a, it's an experience that kind of grabs your head and and drags it along. Do you have an idea of what experience you want the audience to have when you're making music? Not when I'm making it. Uh, I, I don't really think about the music. Or about the audience when I'm making well when you, when I'm making it do you mean when I'm writing it or when I'm making it as in recording it or performing it either either way well when I'm playing live I'd really like the audience to be engrossed in our world because that's what I like to happen when I go to concerts I I I think the performer isn't necessarily doing their job if you're able to switch off and then think about something else you know I like to feel like the performers grabbed me and is engaging me fully and that can only happen when i know that the performer is engaged with the music fully so i'm trying to actually just really be as deep and committed to the musical experience from my side and then i think that if the audience is tuned into that level of commitment then they'll be sucked in also and then the band will be sucked in and then all of us will communally be in this like a musical vortex and then we can start having fun you know you have several bands another one of them is called shabaka and the ancestors this is with a group of uh, south african musicians did you meet them in south africa yeah there's a period when i was going backwards and forwards to south africa maybe a couple of times a year spending a couple of months each time um because i was seeing uh, a lady in south africa um, so it was kind of long distance relationship going backwards and forwards. A distinctly long distance relationship. Oh yeah, it was so long. <laughs> a very long distance relationship. Yeah, and I, I just had a lot of really amazing experiences with musicians when I was there. And I remember I would come back to Britain and just be telling everyone, you have no idea how much fun I'm having in Johannesburg or Cape Town. Like there's some really amazing musicians and people are like, oh yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, you know, yeah, I'm sure they can play. And I was thinking that, no, you really don't understand. Like these guys are like amazing. Like this, the experiences I'm having are like phenomenal. I feel like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So at some point I was like, I really need to just document what's happening because I'm going over there and actually getting so inspired and blown away by the creativity and just the vibe and the energy that was out there. Uh, musically. Um, so I, I kind of put together some of just my favorite musicians uh, to play with that I'd played with in various different formations um, and made that first album. What's different about playing with musicians in South Africa who are part of a kind of another parallel jazz tradition? Like, you know, there there are these sort of continua of jazz that are running next to and intersecting with American jazz, South Africa is another one with a long history going back into the 50s. Yeah. 
how did how do you feel like they were different than the people you were playing with in London? Well, for one, it felt like the spirit of the music that a lot of them was playing came from a different era. So I would go over there and it was, you could tell that the, the foundations were in the, the kind of 60s impulse, like Pharaoh Sanders, Alice Coltrane vibe, you know, Alba Isla. Um, that was a spirit, you know, not necessarily that the music sounded exactly like that, but it kind of felt more like that was a, the connection. Um, at the time in London, I was playing a lot of, music that was you know it had kind of just influences with electronic music it was playing lots of stuff that kind of was like rocky and you know santa kemmer and the comet was coming so it, the music that I was playing at that time wasn't coming from that space specifically also just the way that the musicians contextualized their music in terms of how they spoke about its meaning and its purpose was just very different a lot of musicians were talking about music and healing they were talking about music and ancestral connections you know about the music in relation to a spiritual realm which just wasn't the conversations that i was having in london it seems like in naming the band Chewbacca and the Ancestors, naming a record we're sent here by history, you are investigating in a way that's parallel to your Sons of Kemet work, the kind of long arc of time, like a, a flattening of a big circle of life. And that doesn't seem that different from some of the aesthetics of the music, like that mesmeric quality that I described in your records. Like it, it could feel like you are passing through time and also staying in one time at the same time. You know what I mean? Yeah. What, what do you want to find when you're recording that kind of music? Like, what are you looking for? I guess we're looking for the timeless. We're looking to, to be in a space where we are outside of time you know, where that concept, where time stops. And when I've actually had my most profound experiences on, on stage, there is definitely that sensation of being beyond a linear time structure. You know, they, there comes a point when I'm having, you know, when I'm deep in the music and all the situation is right. So when my relationship to my instrument on a physical level is, is operating at, you know, perfect capacity I, I'm listening and, and engaging with all my bandmates and I feel like I'm sunk, you know, I'm, I'm a part of the fiber of the music. Like there's no disconnection between what I'm doing and the resulting sound. The audience is kind of giving the energy and there's a kind of in, interplay between us. You know, at that moment, it feels like when everything rises up and actually comes off the stage that, it could be one minute that goes by. It could be an hour. It could be a day. It, you know, the idea of time just just finishing it just becomes an experience, and that's what that's the experience that I'm trying to to chase. Have you had that experience consuming art made by other people? Yeah, and it's it happens very rarely, and I'm incredibly grateful when it happens. I've had it with a Bjork concert. I've seen Bjork three times. Um, but I saw her for the first time in in Glastonbury when she was on the I think the Volta tour, and there was just a moment in that in that performance when I and I was a massive Bjork fan, like really, there's like you know Vespertine. I, I I think I listened to it every day for about 
a couple of years, you know, like I was really, really, really into it when, you know, at that, at that period. So when Volta came out, I was just kind of starting to get into that record. It had it hit me in the same way that Vespertine hit me, but at that particular performance, it clicked. And I went so far into the music that I really lost myself at some point. It's like I came back to myself and my hands were in the air and my eyes were shut and I was just like, my mouth was open. I was just kind of like, you know, swinging around like some kind of possessed dude. And I was just like, oh my God, what has this you know, woman done to me? So you've been, um, I presume like many of us, mostly isolated for a, a year and a bit. Yeah. Your music is so, like, feels so communal to me. <laughs> like... <laughs> You know, there's there's plenty of uh, singer-songwriters and rapper-producers who I'm sure are just holed up in the studio, knocking out songs and feeling great. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> but I have a hard time imagining your music existing without collaborations with other people, direct collaboration with other people. So how have you managed to find that, you know, inside your apartment? It's been real ups and downs this pandemic this last year in that it's for me it's about searching for what makes me feel happy you know and it, that sounds simple but it's it's like real simple and it's also really complex because obviously you know we're not playing with people and I don't like the idea of playing with people over the internet so I, I really got down to what does it mean to play for myself you know like what does it mean to find the joy of making music without an audience and actually without an audience there's there's a lot less intensity <laughs> you know there's a lot less of that kind of trajectory where the music rises and rises and rises to climax there's a stillness so first of all it became about not necessarily playing the clarinet or the saxophone as much uh which was a shocker to to, to kind of realize that I didn't want to play these instruments. I started to practice the, you know, the shakuhachi and the plastic shakuhachi more. A lot of little flutes that I've gone in over the years, um, just playing for my own pleasure. Then it meant that when I went back to the saxophone and the clarinets, I was actually kind of finding new things to play. And yeah, it's like the more I become comfortable with, you know, playing for myself, then I think the more power I'm gaining so that when I actually play and communicate with other people, I've got a, a more um, solid underpinning of actually what I have to say. But also I've spent a lot of time just learning new technology. So I've, you know, I've been learning the MPC, you know, I've been through a big kind of pathway, like up until this pandemic time, I was the guy that just played the instruments. Like I, I didn't own a microphone. I didn't really use logic. I kind of knew how to use logic in terms of just cutting up files and sending them to people if I needed to. But I, I wasn't really um, adept to any music production technology. Um, and I'd always known that I should have, but I could just be practicing my horn. So I just never got around to it. I like this new... MPC Shabaka Hutchings. MPC is a digital sampler a beat machine. It really evidences the uh, the maxim that I just invented that uh, all things bend towards Jay Dilla eventually. Oh yeah, and yeah, just the story of him just making that last album on his hospital bed. You know, it's always stuck with me. It's like, what is this machine? Uh, and for me, this is the this is a thing that I thought of for so long. Like, how do you humanize the machine? You know, how do you get uh, an Android approach where you have the tech? Like, we are within the technological realm, 
but how do you get a machine that can actually be fit for purpose for human, you know, like human qualities? And I feel like Jay Dilly is someone who could do that. He kind of took the pentameter and he twisted it and worked around it. So yeah, it's like I've done so much of the the human element in terms of making music. I feel like now I'm in a good space where I can actually start, you know, looking into the machine <laughs> uh, and seeing like where my role can be. Because I don't just want to make beats. I, I, you know, I don't. I'm not a beat maker. But I think there's something that I've got to offer that that realm. You know, but I just need to learn it first <laughs> before that can come out. Well, I'm looking forward to it, Shabaka, and um, congratulations on Black to the Future. It's a really spectacular record and uh, i love your work so thank you for coming on bullseye it's nice to get to talk to you uh, thank you shabaka hutchings his band the sons of kemet have a brand new record it's called black to the future you can buy it wherever you get new music it's pretty spectacular let's go out on one more song from sons of kemet's album black to the future this one is called throughout the madness stay strong That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye created out of the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where I got two beds that I bought at auction for a total of $30 powder coated the other day in a place called Pico Rivera, an industrial town uh, here in the Los Angeles basin. And man, if you've never gotten anything powder coated, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio and Jordan Cowling are our associate producers. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Production fellows at Maximum Fun are Richard Roby and Valerie Moffat. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by the band The Go Team. Thanks very much to them and to their label Memphis Industries for sharing it. They have a new single called Pow! from their upcoming LP and it jams so hard and the video is so cool. So go check out the Go Team and their new single, Pow, uh, if you need to get pumped up for your day. You can also keep up with our show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post our interviews in all of those places. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Mm-hmm.